You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton. A series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships. The passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the writer Matt Haig. His number one best-selling books range from memoir to fiction to stories for children, but they all have one thing in common. They explore and celebrate human frailty, the notion of contentment, and what it means to be alive. His children's books include The Truth Pixie and A Boy Called Christmas. His most recent novel, How to Stop Time, is being adapted for film and will star Benedict Cumberbatch. Reasons to Stay Alive, a memoir about his breakdown aged 24 and his subsequent experiences with depression and anxiety, has become a treasured book for hundreds of thousands of people, full of wisdom, heart, pain, truth, and most of all, reassurance that you are not alone. His most recent non-fiction book, Notes on a Nervous Planet, is a similarly illuminating and comforting read in which he investigates how modern life, the virtual world, overstimulation and disconnection from reality is affecting our mental health, all while drawing on his own experience and told in his own uniquely powerful, honest, tender and witty voice. Confusing things for people who've never had experience of serious mental illness is that they f- imagine it's to do simply and purely with a thought pattern that it's like something you sort of think yourself into and think yes, yourself out yes. of. Whereas my experience, I mean, sometimes it can be like that, and obviously thoughts are a major factor of it, it's something like depression. But my experience and my certainly my initial experience of it was of sensation, of feeling. It was it was quite similar to a physical condition in that sense because so many of my symptoms were like below-the-neck symptoms, um, you know, racing heart, sweating, nausea, whatever. And God, that's so true. That's I've never heard it put like that, but that that is the misconception often. Yeah. That it's a, that it's about choosing thoughts rather than rather than feelings and sensation. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, and it's because we don't have sort of scientific understanding of a brain and a nervous system in the way we have about physical organs like hearts and kidneys. So physical health is just easier to understand, you know, from a science perspective. But, um, yeah, and that's why I always bang on about how the divide between mental and physical health is, is, is such... A, it's false, and B, I think it increases stigma because people still have this idea that mental health is a kind of character or personality issue or defect, whereas physical health is always just, oh, you you know, it can happen to anyone. Whereas the reality is with mental health and physical health, there's often a context for it. There's often lifestyle factors involved, Mm. but that doesn't make you any less sympathetic to the person with heart disease. Mm. You don't say, oh, well, you've eaten too much red wheat meat, therefore, or, or you grow, grew up in the 1950s where it, it, passive smoking was everywhere. You know. mm. Notes on a Nervous Planet, you delve into so many different ways that modern life is affecting mental health. And, um, you know, you look at the bad news cycle um, and how kind of disheartening and oppressive that can feel you talk about the 
the kind of capitalism thing, the consumerism thing about the need for acquisition, the comparative stuff that everyone's familiar with on social media, wasting time and the kind mm. of shame and the frustration that, that comes with that. Yeah. What, With all the research that you've done for this and all the kind of thinking that you've done with this book, do you is there one in particular that you think is is the most potent as as the in terms of the effect it has it mental on mental health or is it more that you're that we should be worried about the collective i think it's kind of both if i could pick one word that's symptomatic of our time i think it's overload yeah and i think whatever aspect whether it's nice things like entertainment media, whether it's less nice things like news, um, you know, social media, whatever it is, work pressures, I think we're all feeling a little bit overloaded in some ways. For for instance, um, like evolutionary psychologists tell us that we are perfectly evolved and equipped to deal with society 30,000 years ago, which is the kind of last point we biologically properly evolved and if you go back to neolithic times in our entire lifetime we would probably the average person would have encountered about 150 new people wow. and new faces in life you can do that on instagram in an hour mm. just by scrolling through mm. and we're literally overloaded with people I mean, if you take the comparison example, being overloaded, I mean, it's not just that we're overloaded with people. It's not random people. Often we're following the most famous, success, successful people, these rare individuals who uh, don't look an average way, who don't have average careers, who've got millions of followers who are massively, nominally more popular than us. And, you know, that's the nature of, human beings to to look up to people and aspire to things but because we've got so much you know celebrity culture is so saturated mm. it can make you feel like mediocre just not because you're not in an avengers movie <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's interesting that you should mention neolithic times because i think a lot about social media and the role that it plays in my life because I think I am I've realized in the last year a fully fledged addict and it is a problem so I've had to start putting things in place to you're not as addicted as me I don't think really I, think I, I admire your restraints on Instagram you don't like do that every day do you I've taken it off my phone I have yeah. a toy phone and a grown-up phone so I have a phone that is next to my bed it's like a great phone for pictures that I turn on once a day that's okay. for Instagram and Twitter and then my grown up phone no toys allowed on that oh, yeah that's good yeah how are you with it now I do have to do things to make myself better like I don't charge my phone in my bedroom yes I read in an interview you said that I think it's small things like that make an enormous difference yeah I've switched Facebook, for some reason, I started sending me notifications again. I never use Facebook, but I, I'm all, I, I just I can't even be bothered to go on Facebook and switch off my notifications. But I, other than Facebook, I've got all my notifications switched off. I'm going to switch off Facebook notifications as well. Um, yeah, I've lapsed recently. I was really good while I was writing notes on A Nervous Planet. Then when it came out, I had to go into promotion mode, which drew, mm. drew me back into the sort of social media world. Yeah. And I, I, I'm gearing up to be 
good again. And sort of, I want. I haven't had a full month off though for ages, and I loved it when I had a. Full, I used to occasionally have full months off, and then I'd discover things like country music and <laughs> get into things. Country air, yeah. <laughs> country air. Uh, and no, even like if you if you, the internet becomes nicer if you're if you're restricting yourself from certain areas that you use too much. Totally. Because the internet's a wonderful thing, but it's just that we get caught up in our own interactions with it and our own presentations of ourselves. And there's no, you know, the, the happiness and joy you superficially get from being super popular with a, a tweet that goes viral or a picture that people like of you has such a superficial and short-term kind mm. of hit in your cortex, you know, the front cortex of your brain, that it's not, um, I don't know, it's not, it, it's fine. It's fine to have those little hits, like little tequila slammers in your life, but to invest, Can't you, when, sustain, you, when you yeah. invest so much in that, yeah. Well, well what I was going to say about ne- Neolithic times <laughs> is, I went to Orkney about 18 months ago and completely I was wow. besotted with it. I fell no, in love no with Wi-Fi, it. No Wi-Fi, is there not? No, they do have Wi-Fi. Um, but it's it's like the most open yeah. landscape I've ever been to. And it was the first time I felt, um, I was going to say I'm going to sound like a hippie, but I'm talking to a man who lives in Brighton, so I think I'm in <laughs> safe. You can't be too <laughs> so Who homeschools his children. Who's <laughs> contemplating veganism. <laughs> um, but it, it made me feel very connected to history and ancestry in a way yeah. that, that I never had before. Oh, nice. And I was, there's this like little village that was a Neolithic village that was underground for years and years, right by the sea, um, that in the 1800s, through a storm uncovered. And um, I was fascinated by it. And I went into this little kind of settlement, I think it's about 15 houses, and they're these like stone, very basic stone structures. And when I was walking around the stone structures, I said to the, to the kind of tour guy, there was like a, a little, there's a fire pit, which is obviously like a modern radiator. There was like a little bed for the baby, which was like a crib. And there were, you know, um, a bed for the adults. And then there was this like strange ledge that was like a mantle. And I said to the to the tour guide, what what is that? And, and on it, there were like little bones and shells um, and leaves. And he said, oh, it's where they, we think that they would have put items that they liked or that represented them or was something to do with their family. And I was like, that's Instagram. (laughs) That's what it is. And actually, I think sometimes we forget that the human... Yes, Instagram and the saturation and the the all-encompassing nature of it, that is a modern problem. But the inclination... To show who mm. you are and express who you are collectively in a family, yes. that is what you like. That's an ancient, ancient instinct. Well, exactly. And we've still got those same instincts. But what I would add into that is the problem now is those ancient, totally natural human and cultural instincts are being exploited and adapted by technology in conjunction with capitalism exactly. in a way where people are getting clever and cleverer at manipulating those instincts and making the, them addictive, you know, not for any more sinister reasons than increasing their market share and market value. But, um, you know, they have psychological consultants for most of the sort of big social media companies. And they are trying to make 
their products more addictive. And we're still in a point in time where addiction isn't really understood anyway, but certainly addiction to things that aren't physical mm. isn't fully understood. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it can be a lovely thing and a lot of people never have any kind of problem with it and use it in a very aware and mindful and careful way. But I have never met any of those people. <laughs> I'm sure they do exist. I mean, my... my like my my wife Andrea, she she is on Facebook, but she'll just only like other people's stuff and then congratulate people on birthdays and anniversaries and never puts up a status update because she's. Yeah, but we're going to get on to Andrea later. I think Andrea is quite a remarkable and unique woman. I have she's to a, say, Matt, she's quite annoying to live with in terms of the social media aspects because I just <laughs> feel like I'm so the opposite of that. I'm, I am as well. It's just, but I need I need to learn some some kind of restraint. I I think if you if you're aware of what you want to do, like if you've got a post or someone you want to contact, then it's very easy. It's just the continual scrolling that can literally play with your concept of time. You can mm. do that for hours. Is there any particular piece of research or statistic that you discovered when writing the book that that you found particularly shocking? I think the area of sleep and how little we talk about sleep and how much pressure there is on us not to sleep or at least not to sleep properly to the extent, like, you know, the head of Netflix, Reed Hastings, says that Netflix's um, main competitor is not Amazon, it's not a TV channel or streaming service. Netflix's main competitor is sleep. That is so uh, disturbing. Uh, <laughs> and that idea, and it's not a particularly new idea, it's a hundred-year-old idea, uh, you know, like Thomas Edison used to spout on, he used to do sort of tours of America and Europe, um, talking about his light bulb and stuff, and he used to see this as the answer to the problem of sleep, and it would create this 24-hour society. And it was sort of right. He did sort of electricity and electric light, did usher in the age of nightlife and factories being open all through the night and stuff like that. But I don't think we're, we're so used to thinking of diet and exercise and, you know, they're multi-billion pound industries, both of those things. And because not that many people are making money from us being asleep, and actually people are losing money from us being asleep, that there's not much incentive to talk about sleep. And it's quite a sort of boring idea, isn't it? And we've got it drilled into us that we're boring if we go to sleep at 10 o'clock at night, or, or, or a, like a politician or a leader is... Um, more productive if they're up at 3.30 yeah, yeah. in the morning. You know, obviously, like, Trump says that, but also even, like, the Obamas, said, you know, were proud to sort of, like, talk about getting up at 4 in the morning and famously Margaret Thatcher and lots of business leaders, whereas the evidence actually says you're less productive if mm. you're getting... But we're encouraged to... So just that was one of the things that I wasn't thinking of at all and which I now think is massively important to me when I think in the past about how... My, and obviously living in Ibiza, when I lived in Ibiza, I wasn't getting much sleep. Um, and a lot of my things are related to do with that. And obviously it's chicken and egg because often you're not sleeping well because you're stressed out mm. or something like that. But just the mere fact, if I go to bed now at like half ten, which I don't often do, but if I go to bed at a reasonable hour, 
I um, I feel better even if I'm not asleep, mm. uh, just to sort of have that routine. If I said to you that both the internet and your smartphone, it's all it's all coming to an end, and there is you can save one app or one website. There's one thing from modern technology that you could save. What would it be? I really like Spotify. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Um, because it's, I think it's a, a good way of discovering new things. There are aspects I don't like about the modern digital world of music and how we, people don't really listen to albums anymore. But I do end up listening to a lot more music I wouldn't be listening to because of Spotify, I think. So Spotify um, would be a good one. I use Wikipedia a lot. You know, it, it, I wrote a historical novel set in 15 different time periods. And in the olden days, that would have meant going to the British Library for 700 yeah. years. Yeah, and yeah, now yeah. you've just got Wikipedia. And, you know, you don't know who you're, you're trusting, but you think, well, mm. it's probably right. Candy Crush? <laughs> I don't do... I'm really lo-fi in terms of my games. So when no, I... No, I am as well. I, I was just wondering if there was one really embarrassing thing you do on your phone. Oh, no, loads of embarrassing things. I play Pac-Man a lot and like loads of retro <laughs> games. Um, oh, well, I... Do you know what I really should stop doing? What? Typing in my own name. Oh, yeah, gosh. And then looking at, you know people talking about you but that, that, that could really do with being stopped i've done that ed balls thing a few times have you now the question is do you have a google alert for matt haig no i don't but i don't need one because i check it about every hour <laughs> <laughs> matt on to your first love story can you tell me a story a first love. <laughs> I, I might have gone too far back for this. <laughs> no, no, this is perfect. <laughs> well, primary school. Primary school, that's, yeah, let's get to the very, very, <laughs> let's get to the source. Okay, right. Background to this is I had just moved school because I'd, I'd, I'd been a bit of a sort of, well, true to form, anxious child and not having a happy time at my first primary school. And then my parents took me to this tiny village school um, in a village called Aram in Nottinghamshire. And literally there were like 30 people in the school. And I'd never been the popular kid. And suddenly I was like the interesting popular kid from the town. Oh, and wow. For the first time and only time in my life, I was in the football team. I, I was, you know... Uh, I was almost cool and it was like, you know, there wasn't much competition. I was going to say, I think it's sort of by default. <laughs> by default. If you've got three classmates, <laughs> you've got a one in four. And so, <laughs> so I, I like these odds. <laughs> those odds worked for me. And, um, yeah, there was a girl called Ruth. And I think for, like, we were together, like, seven months. So I was even into long-term relationships when I was Oh, my God. So ten. you were together? We were boyfriend and girlfriend and would hold hands on the bench and like uh, I don't I don't think you don't snog at that age. But I think we sort of like, you know kissed, you. kissed and um talked and we had sleepovers. Oh my god. <laughs> you had sleepovers. Yeah, but innocent sleepovers, like friends. Yeah, she slept at my house. In a separate room, presumably. I don't even know, but definitely wow. separate beds, obviously. 
Uh, we went on a date, my first ever date. When you were was, 10, Matt. It was at Christmas. Yeah, I was 10 because I'm a July birthday. So, yeah, this would have, I would have definitely been 10, 10 and a half. Did you go outside. Dutch? I mean. Um, <laughs> no, it was just me and her and my parents dropped us off at the Palace Theatre, which we didn't have a cinema in Newark-on-Trent. Um, so it was a, a theatre that was showing a film. Yeah, we felt like grown-ups. And that is very grown-up. I have no idea because um, we, we, we didn't go to the same secondary school or anything, so it was just like a little capsule of time. And I can't even remember how it fizzled out. I think it was just like summer holidays and it... it Wanted different I don't things. think it ever did technically <laughs> but uh, it was just the thing I can remember being quite a romantic 10 year old I think um, I think I wrote a um, a, a long Christmas card mm. about how much I loved her did you keep in touch no and we kept in touch obviously all the time we were together over holidays and stuff but n- no and I, I, I don't know I don't know where she is in life. I don't even know if she's still called Ruth Dawson. But and did your parents? Did your respective parents? Was it? Did they know that there was like a sort of infantile romantic element to it, or did they think you were sort of just best friends? No, before we boyfriend and girlfriend. But yeah, it was just quite innocent. Yeah. And um, and then you know, I, I didn't actually after her. I didn't have another. Um, girlfriend proper girlfriend for quite a while my first sort of two years of secondary school I didn't and like everyone was snogging and spin the bottling and yeah I wasn't I was always like trying to avoid those situations and how old are your kids now you've got girl and a boy oh uh, yeah 10 and 9 oh my and god exactly, I can't imagine that how 10. does that feel now thinking about <sighs> yeah well my I see my 10 year old as a baby yeah but um He's obviously not in some ways. And you said that after Ruth, yeah. the one that got away, <laughs> um, you it was two years until... Yes. I mean, I wasn't... I was incredibly... You see, because I suppose I go back to my relationship with this girl, Ruth, because that was the last time I was confident before adolescence fully mm. kicked in. Mm. And then I became this awkward, spotty, lanky... Um, dweeb who struggled with girls and oh. like girl, like I was the sort of person who girls loved having me as a friend yeah but Ross Geller you Ross <laughs> I was Ross I made but it, Ross uh, gets the girl in the end yeah I bet like I, I think there was a girl who like I was like used me like I can remember being like 14 years old and there was this girl who just split up with like a popular boy and she asked me out and I was like, yeah, <laughs> just because. And then she just marched me around the playground in front of the, and I just thought, I'm being a bit used here. But yeah, generally, I was, I, I always liked the company of girls. I always sort of like enjoyed chatting to girls generally more than boys. But in terms of relationships in the sort of early teen years, it wasn't happening. But it's funny to me, maybe it's because I went to an all girls school when you said, oh, you know, and then after Ruth, it was quite a long time before I had a girlfriend, you know, two yeah. years. Well, yeah, no, but I mean, it was longer than that in terms of any sort of 
proper girlfriend. But, yeah. Um, but as in, I just couldn't yeah, get a boy to come near me until I was 18, basically. But they weren't, they just, you, you were physically apart from them, though, weren't you? But then I went to mixed boarding school and I still, I tried really hard. But you might have tried <laughs> too hard. Maybe I tried too hard. <laughs> also, it's, it's uh, you saying that thing about being paraded around the playground. Yes. And that thought going through your head of like, oh, I know I'm being used. It's so, um, it makes, there's so much like sadness when I think about that thought because I definitely had that as a teenager. And I think every former dweeb knows the feeling of that thought coming into the head and going, but that's okay. I don't mind being used. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, keep using me. I'm fine. Please keep using me for at least another six months. Yeah. So much better than the alternative (laughs) of sitting on that bench on my own. (laughs) Matt, I'd like to talk about your next love story, which is a story of unrequited love, who is, of course, Madonna. Madonna. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, showing my age here. I was born in 1975. So Madonna for me was... My, I grew up via Madonna, you know, and so I had a lot of um, key instrumental daydreams about her in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, people, I suppose, because what, what was the first Madonna you remember? Well, here's the thing, Matt, and this is not in any way to try and make you feel old. Because mm. I was born in 1988. Yes. I miss a lot of the big formative <laughs> Madonna Yes, years, so it's all in retrospect. Yeah, it's all in retrospect, which means, and I know that I will have people who want me hung, drawn and quartered for saying this, I don't think I've ever quite grasped the cultural shift and the phenomena and the the huge, huge sensation and the significance that was Madonna. Oh, yeah. Can you try and explain it to me as someone who wasn't there? Right, okay. Well, Madonna, what's annoying now is like when you get these 1980s shows, they sort of like condense the 80s into this one time frame. So they have like true blue Madonna with like a virgin Madonna. For me, the Madonna, when I think of Madonna, I'm thinking... um, like a virgin era and even earlier like lucky star era madonna when she was just this phenomenon and she was just so sort of this was a time when um certainly famous female singers and actors you didn't see that many people who seemed to be owning their own stuff and just sort of doing exactly what she wanted to do however much that was true or not true that was definitely the impression you got from Madonna and for being quite an insecure young male Mm. person she was a very attractive kind of person like that I she got me into trouble as well because I used to get these Madonna fanzines (laughs) oh my god you were hardcore oh yeah and it was kind of soft porn because (laughs) (laughs) like a virgin era madonna for the context of 1984 that was kind of and so um i got into i got detention for having a madonna fanzine out you know she was just sort of lying back with loads of pearls and you know doing the sort of material girl thing but that counted as explicit in my my school so she got me into trouble so she had that dangerous element to her but uh, yeah there was a, there was a magic my favorite ever madonna song is borderline oh i love that song it's such a good song and there's that sort of new york d 
disco, I didn't even know it was New York disco, but that whole sort of sound had a sort of sort of soothing, magical, escapist feel when you're growing up in a crappy market town in Nottinghamshire. And she was just, you know, I, I read all the interviews with her and there's a famous story of her when she first went to New York in 1979 or 1980. I, it's probably not a true story, but it's a story that she used to say. But she got in a taxi and said, just take me to the centre of everything. And oh he God. took her to Times Square or something. But that idea when you're in this sort of like faraway satellite town in Nottinghamshire and Madonna just seemed to be the centre of the universe yeah. of everything yeah. fun in the early 80s was it all roads led to Madonna and her videos were amazing at a time when not all videos were amazing and um I, I, you know, I suppose, yeah, I just went off. I mean, Papa Don't Preach was probably right at the end of my total Madonna phase. And as soon as she was later into sort of like a prayer and stuff, I, I was a little bit past Madonna and into what I thought was cooler stuff. But my Madonna um, years were quite intense. But I was quite impressed when I saw that Madonna was your unrequited love because, as you said, you know, she obviously is a beautiful woman and she's very sexy, but she, even in those early years, she was... It, she's it was, not an object. No, she was powerful, exactly, and she was subverting kind of femininity and sexuality in a lot of her work and imagery and her music videos. So it kind of, I don't know, it impressed me that a teenage boy would would be drawn to that. Yeah, I mean, I think... Rather I, than intimidated by it. No, what I absolutely. Mean. I think... Madonna just seemed to be, like, I'd been petrified of her, but she was just exciting. And I was at that age where it wasn't just, it wasn't just a sort of, like, sexual awakening fantasy kind of thing with Madonna. It was more like she'd just be such a cool person to hang out with. Mm. And she was just like, yeah, my little Beatles for a while. And um, I don't really listen to Madonna music now, but still that sort of early 80s Madonna sound, which I know now as a grown-up person was largely sort of borrowed from the sort of disco scene that went before it. Mm. But, um, yeah, amazing. Right. Matt, time for a quick fire round. Go. Most romantic film of all time? City Lights. Oh my God, never even seen it. Amazing. Who's it with? Charlie Chaplin. Oh, that is annoyingly. (laughs) (laughs) Most romantic song? It's Not Over Yet by Grace, which isn't a song I'd particularly listen to now, but it's a, a rave era song. Um, which was covered, I think, by the Claxons or something as well. But um, it means a lot to me and Andrew. But also Boys of Summer is a love song. And this is a trickier question, and I apologise for it in advance. Most romantic line in a song? The first verse of The Cure's Just Like Heaven. That's that's mine! Is it really? (laughs) Because I was like, my oh, one is, is spinning on that dizzy, dizzy edge. Uh, I, yeah, I love that. I love the Cure. They were my first band I saw live at 14. So which is the... Fu- I can't believe you said that because the reason I ask that question is because that is etched on my head. 
that verse. But mine's not the first. Yours Do you is have the any first. any autobiographical connection to that song? Is there any particular? Yeah, and this will sound insane, but it links back to what we were just talking about. It was when I was 16 and a huge, desperate romantic and no one would come near me. And it was I had all the tools. I was like a desperate romantic. I was ready to love someone and be passionate with someone. And I remember being so frustrated because I just couldn't find anyone that wanted to do it with me. So I would just, sorry, as in do, <laughs> I mean, that no one wants to do that with me either, but do love with me. So I just we used to go into my head all the time. And then Just Like Heaven just became my song with this, like, pretend man who loved me. And that sounds so sad. It wasn't it's... a real man. No, no. But that's why it's so potent to me, because yeah. I think it reminds me of the hopefulness of what this teenager yeah. who was so green thought love would be. Yeah. But it was yours with an actual real human. No, 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 it wasn't. No, because I, that was before Andrea, and that was just, I loved, I still love The Cure. Me too. I, I, and... I, I feel like The Cure encapsulate my emotional side better than any other music. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people say that, but I feel like there's something... And also being a, a boy who wasn't a... I didn't fit the right 80s stereotypes of what being male should be, and The Cure kind of saved boys like me. Yeah. Because they were... Well, they wore makeup, but they were overtly... You know, they literally had a song called "Boys Don't Cry" yeah. about wanting to cry. Yeah. You know, so they they were they were the only ones because you know, but even a lot of the indie music of the eighties was quite sort of macho. But The Cure were um, openly, embarrassingly sentimental and poetic. And for anyone who doesn't know, the words you're talking about for that first verse are, "Show me how you do that trick." Yeah, and and he does it like show me, show me, show me. The one that makes me scream, she said. Um, I can't believe I'm speaking this like yeah, like I... a BBC announcer. <laughs> the one that makes me. What's the next line? The one that laugh. Laugh. I said and threw her arms, arms around, around my, my neck. <sighs> and that drum solo at the beginning—it's just. Oh yeah, just honestly, yeah, the cure sends shivers. I think that's the most romantic song of all time, and I've never met someone who feels the same. So I'm very, oh, very happy we had this conversation, even though I know everyone at home will be cringing because we sound like two stoned people. <laughs> In fact, I think I'm going to have to insert a bit of it here, just to anyone who doesn't know it, just to convince you that Matt and I are right when we say this is a very, very, very romantic song. Matt, I have to talk about uh, reasons to stay alive. Um, like many people, I came to your writing and fell in love with your writing through um, reasons to stay alive. That book, for me, has become so much more than the first time that I read it. 
you know, on Mental Health Awareness Day, it's passages of it are shared everywhere. Mm. And it feels like this book, which is about your personal story and your personal observations, has become so big and people, it's become so a part of people's mental health journey. Does that feel incredibly overwhelming to you? It feels weird sometimes. Like was like when the very worst experience of your life becomes this sort of memeable mm. moment twenty years later. Mm. Um but not a wholly bad thing. It's a it's a nice thing to A feel useful. Uh, you don't you know, you don't always feel that as a writer and certainly not as a novelist. But to sort of like have stepped out from that and to have done something that people do seem to find useful, either to help them through mental health conditions or to understand people and to have that sort of window into something invisible. Um, but I did struggle with it for a while. I struggled with it when the paper pack came out and um, I was having everything I ever wanted. I was having a number one bestseller. I was having, um, you know, I suddenly on people's radar. I'd been struggling writer for 10 years before that. And it was literally everything I wanted. Um, but because it was this book and because it was this personal, because it had real people in it, like mm. Andrea and my parents, I, I, I found it a bit too much. And that, that the idea that this is what I was being known as, as someone with depression and with anxiety, Ironically, I was still having a lot of self-stigma about that. And um, there was a point where I was getting lots of about 10 emails, 10 very long emails a day from people in um, all kinds of states of distress. And I was finding it hard how to deal with that as mm. someone who wasn't a doctor, who wasn't a trained person. Um, now I'm over all that and I, I, I appreciate it and I'm really thankful for it. And if I could pick any one of my books, if all my books had to sort of perish and not exist and there could only be one, it would still be that one because mm. I think it's been the most useful for people. But, um, yeah, it, it was kind of a interesting... It's interesting when I have dips, that book, because I'm, I'm fine about it when I'm well. And then your relationship changes to it. Then my relationship changes yeah. to it. Because when I'm in an anxiety patch or depression patch, I, it's quite easy for me to get into that negative frame of mind where I think I'm a fraud or I think, you know, why is that book helping other people if it can't help me and that sort of stuff. But I think what people relate to it is the fact that I'm not a doctor with all the answers. I'm not even in a state of 100% perfect mental health. I'm a person who went through an experience who is no longer suicidal, who was once suicidal, who's known more happiness this side of depression yeah. and all of that. And I think it, it hopefully has more authenticity for the fact that I'm not in a perfect place and admit I'm not in a perfect place because I used to be so cynical about self-help because self-help, the idea is that you've got all the answers and this is the pattern to follow. And I wasn't really trying to do that. I suppose what I was trying to do is send a, a message in a bottle back through time to mm. myself and to try and find the words, um, as simple words as I could possibly find um, to sort of keep that person in the world and to even try and put a bit of hope in that person's mind. In the book, 
you talk about the breakdown that you had when you were 24 and you also talk about Andrea, who was your girlfriend mm. at the time and is now your wife of... Mm. How long have you been married? 2007, so getting on for 11 years. Well, yeah, February, February, so yes, we're there. So, understandably, Andrea is your passionate love story. Yes, and passionate. It's always been, you know, we've always had, you know passionate arguments and it's always been passionate in terms like I feel like you know you're meant to say in a long-term relationship that um it's about friendship and it's about all of that and obviously it is but I also think you need somehow to keep passion not just sexual passion but passion and intensity, a degree yeah, of intensity. I agree. And, and like a sense of fight for each other Absolutely. and for the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And like a sense of like ambition of what you want to do in life, a sense of forward thinking, which becomes ever harder as you progress through life. But to, to keep that um, is a way to not grow stale as a couple, I think. And what are the main differences between? You and Andrea. But there's only differences. <laughs> and they're all quite big. I mean, for instance, Andrea essentially is quite organised and she's a person who's tidy, naturally so, and she's um, quite ordered and she's um, quite careful. And I'm not necessarily any of those things. Um She'll, she she can be wild and have fun, but she'll know she'll she'll always be able to balance it, so she won't go too far in any one direction. Um, she's, you know, I, I I always feel like she's more selfless than me. I feel like she's slightly more. Um, she, she'll be the one who sort of thinks. Of other people, you know, for for all the will in the world, I like to think I'm a good person who cares about other people, but I very easily get wrapped up in myself. Mm, mm. You I'm, can't have two of those in a relationship. Yes, exactly. So Andrea's better at um, that sort of life stuff, and I think we're a good balance. And she's she's tough as well, and she's she can like she, she there's something sort of no nonsense about her, and she will sort of like. You know, she's gone through a lot in her life and um, she she's sort of nothing can totally rock her. I mean, she's had, she's verged onto depression like when our kids were young and stuff, just through the normal stuff like sleep deprivation and things yeah. like that. And she's had mental health wobbles. Um, but I, th I think she just always, her default setting goes back to just sort of like... No nonsense. I think because she's from the northeast and she's from quite a no nonsense working class community, she's just got this natural no BS kind of mm. approach. And is there anything about long term marriage that's kind of surprised you? Um, or is it what you well, thought it would be? Well, I don't know how much we changed with marriage, to be honest, yeah. because we didn't want to get married and. Um, we kind of got married because we were planning to have kids and it was more for our parents. We wanted to be together forever, but we, we loved the idea of marriage when it was a bit naughty, like when we were t t together after a month 
I proposed to her because it was a bit sort of Bonnie and Clyde yeah, and wild. Yeah. And I gave her a ring, but she never showed to anybody. Yeah. Partly because it was a month and partly because she didn't like the ring. <laughs> <laughs> It was an embedded emerald. It was up oh, in that the sounds nice. <laughs> it wasn't really. No. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think she had three rings before we told anyone. But officially, we were only engaged for 24 hours um, in New York. And then we got married in Las Vegas with nobody there. We paid for a witness. What did mum and dad think about that? Um, her parents were just relieved she'd got married. Yeah. My parents had just had the big white wedding because my sister had got married. Uh, but I don't think they were that happy or unhappy about it. I think they were, I, I think everyone just wanted us to get married and we were very open about the fact that we weren't particularly bothered, but if we're going to do it, we'll just do it in a fun way and then go and see Elton John afterwards. <laughs> Was that your wedding reception? Yeah. Love that. Caesar's Palace. <laughs> Alton John. That's great. Matt, I'm going to ask you to read my favourite section of okay. Reasons to Stay Alive, if that's okay. Right. Okay. This is the chapter very near the end. Well, it is the end, isn't it? Mm. Things I have enjoyed since the time I thought I would never enjoy anything again. And this was actually the very last thing I wrote in the book because not that's not always the case with me. I don't know mm. what you're like, but I, I this was I'd sort of written the book and felt, and then this was on the sort of second draft. I just thought I'd put it all out, out there. Things I've enjoyed since the time I thought I'd never enjoy anything again: sunrises, sunsets, the thousand suns and worlds that aren't ours but shine in the night sky, books, cold beer, fresh air. Dogs, horses, yellowing paperbacks, skin against skin at one in the morning, long, deep, meaningful kisses, short, shallow, polite kisses, all kisses, cold swimming pools, oceans, seas, rivers, lakes, fjords, ponds, puddles, roaring fires, pub meals, sitting outside and eating olives, the lights fading in the cinema with a bucket of warm popcorn in your lap, music, love, unabashed emotion, Rock pools, swimming pools, peanut butter sandwiches, the scent of pine on a warm evening in Italy, drinking water after a long run, getting the all clear after a health scare, getting the phone call, Will Farrell in Elf, talking to the person who knows me best, pigeon pose, picnics, boat rides, watching my son being born, catching my daughter in the water during her first three seconds, reading The Tiger Who Came to Tea and doing The Tiger's Voice, talking politics with my parents, Roman holiday, and a Roman holiday. Talking heads, talking online about depression for the first time and getting a good response. Kanye West's first album, I know, I know. Country music, country music. The Beach Boys, watching old soul singers on YouTube. Lists, sitting on a bench in the park on a sunny day. Meeting writers I love. Foreign roads, rum cocktails, jumping up and down. They're publishing my book, they're publishing my book. Jesus Christ, they're publishing my book. Watching every Hitchcock movie, cities twinkling at night as you drive past them as if they have fallen constellations of stars. Laughing, yes, laughing so hard it hurts. Laughing as you bend forward and as your abdomen actually starts to hurt from so much pleasure, so much release. And then as you sit back and audibly groan and inhale deeply, staring at the person next to you, mopping up the joy. Reading a new Jeff Dyer book, reading an old Graham Greene book, running down hills, Christmas trees... 
painting the walls of a new house, white wine, dancing at three in the morning, vanilla fudge, wasabi peas, my children's terrible jokes, watching geese and goslings on the river, reaching an age, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, I never thought I'd reach, talking to friends, talking to strangers, talking to you, writing this book. Thank you. find that so moving that chapter I broke you I'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't even doing my sentimental no no I knew that oh Dolly I I feel like I should give you a tissue but no don't worry it's fine I mean you're probably used to doing your readings and people just crying in the front row and I'm so crap at it I'm so crap at knowing what to do with myself (laughs) because I'm so crap at like absorbing it and like being, you know, I do occasionally like hug. We can have a hug, but you know. no, don't worry. We don't worry. We're fine. We don't need a hug. It's fine. I just find that a very moving um, end to a very beautiful book. Well, I think yeah, I think that's the weird thing about um, bad times and depression. It can actually, I wouldn't. It's always risky to say it, but I wouldn't undo any of it because it's made me appreciate life in a way I don't I'm almost more scared of knowing what myself without having had that experience Mm. would be and it sharpens that joy it does you know there's that pretentious art history term chiaroscuro about a contrast of light and shade where like renaissance painters used to sort of make John the Baptist and the Virgin Mary look more religious and spiritual and light because they had the darkness all around them, like Caravaggio or something. And I feel like life can be like that. You kind of have those bad times that are horrendous to go through. But then afterwards, the good days can feel far better because you know you're grateful for them. And two people who made a cameo in that list. It's your last love story of everlasting love. Just Lucas oh, and Lucas. Pearl, oh, your yeah. kids. Yeah, and like this was something like I was so petrified, you know, being totally honest, being a typical rubbish male person. I was so petrified of having kids and the sort of responsibility of bringing actual human beings into the world and stuff. But, and, you know, it's definitely, even from my side even from my father's side it wasn't easy those early years of sleep deprivation and Mm. everything else and I inevitably had another patch of depression and this that and the other but I feel like for me who was so so you know always kind of wrapped up in myself it helped me become Babe helped me become a better person and um, I just get such joy from them And it's a way, you know, it's a very frightening thing having kids because it's frightening caring and loving for anybody Mm. and you you haven't got total control over them and things you you have to learn to let go and I'm at that age, they're at that age now when they're approaching adolescence and you know there's all those sort of tough years to come but it's, it's, it makes you understand life a bit more and it makes you be, for me, it's made me a bit more 
determined to hold on to good moments because you can literally, the scary thing about having kids is you literally see time evolving before you yeah. and you're literally losing moments all the time. Yeah. And you're always thinking, oh, God, I wish I spent more time with them when they're younger and you always beat yourself up about it. But, yeah, for me, they're just, yeah, they're just it, my best friends and it's just nice to have have that and appreciate you know make you feel like a child again sometimes by being with them and are you the parent that you thought you would be I know that must be such a difficult thing to try and imagine I felt I didn't think I'm probably a bit better than I thought I would be because I didn't think I I was very scared that I wouldn't be a very good parent and that I'd go off the rails and stuff but I, I think I became a bit more I think something kicked in and I just became a little bit more responsible um I'm I still, you know, my worry, and I talk about it in Notes on a Nervous Planet, my worry is that they'll be saying, oh, he was just on his phone all the time or mm. on his computer. And like, I feel like the next generation growing up, they won't say about their parents, oh, they, were, they weren't there necessarily, but well, they were in the same room as me, but they were just sort of more interested with what was happening on Twitter. So that's an incentive for me to not be too wrapped up in work and too much wrapped up in you know, public image and all of that stuff. Mm. And it, it's a way of grounding you. And it's it forces you, I suppose it's a, a prompt for you to have a better life and have interesting experiences because you're having it for them, you know, to see new places and stuff. So it, it, it's it's good in that sense. But, yeah, it's it's a very hard thing to talk about. Well, love is a very hard thing to, to talk about and pin down, isn't it? And it's a very different kind of love. But um, it, it's lovely how different you know because everyone talks about similarities of kids and their parents as if that's the connection to love what i love about the the kids is how different they are to me and how different they are to each other Mm -hmm. and i don't necessarily want them to be like me and you know there's lots of questions i've had about and that people often ask slightly with a look of judgment in their eye about oh do you talk to your kids about um mental illness and stuff like that and i'm quite open about it they've even been to events where they hear me talk about it but what i What I would have liked when I was ill is to have known that my parents had been through stuff and survived that stuff and been okay. Because you can't shield children from the world. You can't, much as I'd like to re-engineer the world and make it a safer place for them to live in, this is the world we've got. And you all you can do as a parent is say, well, you know, I... I went through this time and I survived this time and you you will have, yes, some bad things will ha- happen to you in life and there'll be people who you lose and love and all of this. But at the end of the day, you, you will be okay. You know, you will stay being you and however much, you, you will surprise yourself time and time again in those moments when you don't think you'll be okay. But actually... Um, you will, and you, you've got reserves in you. And that's that's the thing that I, I learned about myself through depression and anxiety, is that in those moments where you think you've got nothing, somehow something keeps pulling you through. And actually, I think, speaking from my own experience, the, the de- there's a danger in in believing that in a family unit you have to be cut-out roles of perfect parents. Oh, yeah. Not just for the pressure on those adults, but it means that the kids don't ever get to see their parents as vulnerable, flawed, real people. And I just think there's, from what I can see, the balancing act must be how much reality do we give to them? 
that is totally 100% it. How much world do you let in, let in into yeah. the filter? What's filter setting? It must do you have be it on so hard. Everything, you know, an obvious thing would be what, what films, what age certificate you let them see. But what life certificate yeah. do you let them see? Yeah. You know, because you, you can be very religious about sort of saying, okay, you can't watch any 12s until you're 12. But at the same time, you'll you'll occasionally have an argument where there's a couple of 18 certificate words in that argument, and that's just home life. And um, you, you it's all, all, always balanced. But I, I have this sort of sentimental idea, and it's the same with kids as it is with relationships or even friendships or any kind of interhuman connection, that if your heart is genuinely in the right place, if you genuinely care for those people and you're willing to learn from them as well as dictate to them, then most things smooth out in the end and most things turn out all right. And I think the main thing you just want to know from your parents is that they love you and that they care for you. And yes, you'll get a million things wrong. But just even admitting that you'll get a million things wrong is a kind of comfort sometimes. Yeah. If you could go back, I know this question is so annoying and it's like the most hackneyed, cheesy, annoying journalistic question of all time that no one ever actually asks each other at dinner. But I'm going to ask it anyway because I'm no, very interested. If you could go back to... 10-year-old, you've just said goodbye to Ruth and you're about to head in to <laughs> oh. to the seriously dweeby years. Yes, and you with know, only Madonna to save With you. only Madonna <laughs> to save you and, and and you know the 30 years that you have ahead of you. Yeah. What would... message in a bottle would you send back now? I would say don't let any single moment, good or bad, totally define you. Don't, don't, don't drown yourself in those moments because life is fluctuation and things do change. And it's not even about staying around for other people. It is, but those other people are you. You know, those other people are the yous you will become. Mm. And that's what you don't necessarily realize as a young person is how much you individually will change and sometimes change for the better, sometimes change for the worst. But life is change. So, you know, giving up on life or giving up on something just because of a particular moment is always wrong because, you know, you are so much more than your experiences and so much more than those moments. Matt Haig, this has been an absolute joy. Thank you for telling me your love stories. That was wonderful. Thanks, Dolly. you for listening to love stories you can rate to review and subscribe on itunes to give the series a boost and help others find it and you can buy my book everything i know about love published by fig tree which is out in paperback on the 7th of february with a brand new bonus chapter everything i know at 30 you can find my book in waterstones on amazon and in all good bookshops or buy the audiobook with the bonus chapter on audible Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The producer is Adrian Cecil. The editor is Richard Hughes. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories. <laughs>